Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Dictators like to present themselves as superhuman, even godly. But, believe it or not, they all have basic needs just like the rest of us. A tyrant still needs to eat, for example. The role of a personal chef to a dictator is a fascinating one. What can their memories and stories tell us about dictators' appetites? And what portrait do they paint of the banality of evil? Noiser writer Duncan Barrett sat down to talk with Vitol Saplovsky, author of How to Feed a Dictator, Saddam Hussein, Idi Amin, Enver Hodja, Fidel Castro and Pol Pot through the eyes of their cooks. Vitold, you travelled to four different continents to speak to the men and women who cooked for some of the world's most brutal dictators. Was it hard tracking those chefs down and persuading them to talk to you? Hello, Duncan, and good afternoon, good evening to, to everyone who's listening to us. Thank you for having me. It was so hard that if I knew how hard it might be, I would actually never start writing this book. And the research took me more than three years. And making those guys talk was probably the biggest achievement that I, I've ever faced in my work. The, the main reason for that was that the chefs of dictators, they know they are still alive because they knew uh, they shouldn't talk too much. <laughs> and they knew that the silence was their uh, guarantee of life. And uh, the silence were their insurance. And they have this habit of not telling too much. They have this habit of not talking to everyone about your work or your previous work, even if the dictator is dead for, let's say, 20 or 25 years, they still remain living in this silence because they have this habit. So, yeah, it was extremely hard, firstly, to find them, secondly, to make them talk. I was interested. I think it comes across very strongly in the book, the close relationship that they had, but in some ways, as you say, still have with the dictators, even after death. I mean, they're quite, in some cases, unapologetic. There's more than one time where you, it almost gets a bit tense between you and the chef as you're kind of asking the probing questions and they are very much still sort of towing this party line in a way. You know, I was thinking a lot about, about that, but I think the difference between me and them is that my perspective is pretty much Europe-centric. When you talk about Cambodia, let's say, when you, when you talk about the Khmer Rouge, you know who, who was bad and who was good. You, you can name the evil. And Cambodia has never gone through this process fully and properly. Like uh, they are walking on over bones of their victims of the regime, but they never really called what was bad, what was good. So you can easily 
say in Cambodia that actually Pol Pot was idealistic leader who wanted nothing but good for his people. And you wouldn't go to jail, your career wouldn't be broken. And traveling to those countries were an, an awkward experience because sometimes what the chefs were telling me was incredibly horrible. Like, uh, like the chef of Pol Pot, she was telling me exactly that he was idealist, that he wanted the world to be a better place. And whenever I was trying to confront her with the real knowledge about what Khmer Rouge did, what Pol Pot did about the mass killings, about the almost 3 million Cambodians who died during uh, his regime, she said, no, my dear, it was just Vietnamese propaganda. I know the truth. And it's what you're tell, trying to tell me is completely wrong. Amazing. I guess even if the chefs have slightly blinkered uh, understanding of the regime that they're serving, what's fascinating is they did get to know these dictators very intimately. I mean, they, they spent a lot of time with them. And I suppose they got to know their tastes what sort of an insight do you think they give us into these larger-than-life characters? I have a theory that there is only two people that know a dictator really well. Because dictatorship is about lying. Like, you have to lie to everyone. You have to lie to the society to manipulate them. You lie to your generals. You lie to your prime ministers, your ministers. You lie to your wives. It's a nature of dictatorship, but there are two people you cannot lie to. First of them is your private doctor, because you can lie, but he will see your tests and mm -hmm. he will know everything. And the second is your personal chef, because you cannot eat food that you don't like. And I'll go back to the example of Pol Pot again. And when you see Pol Pot through the eyes of his chef and you have this political movement that he began. So he killed millions of people in the name of chauvinistic, nationalistic, uh, communist movement of the rebuilding of the great Cambodia. And at the same time, he didn't even like the food of the tradition he was trying to relate to. So it's such an absurd and it's such a hypocrisy that Pol Pot, killing millions of people in the name of the Cambodian nation, didn't even respect the food of the Cambodian nation. He didn't really eat the Cambodian food. His favorite food actually was baguette, French baguette. If he didn't have access to good cheese, the good, good French cheese, and his chef was a simple girl from, from a village. And she was trying to make her bake a baguette properly. He was trying to explain a girl who had never seen France, who probably had never heard too much about France, how to make a baguette. And so whenever he could, he would, he would ask for a baguette. But when there was no chance for a baguette, he was always asked for Thai food or Chinese food, never Khmer food. This is the real Pol Pot, not the guy who's telling his chauvinist slogans, but the guy who's lying about his real ideals. But when he thinks nobody can see him, he's eating, you know, the food of the other nations. That's very interesting because I suppose there's the, the personal tastes which come across in the food the dictator wants to eat. And then there's the political 
aspect of their regime and its relationship to food, whether that's prioritizing simple peasant food, uh, whether it's using... If I may interrupt yeah. you, because I have very good story related to that. Being a dictator is also a sort of golden cage. So sometimes you you don't eat, you cannot eat things that you like, but mm. you need to eat certain kind of things because you're a dictator. And my next book, which will be published in the UK this year and in, in the United States, is about Russia through the kitchen door. So it's a hundred years of, Russian and Soviet history told by the chefs from the last czar to the Ukrainian-Russian war. And I had the chance to interview the chef, Mr. Viktor Bilaev, who was the director of the Kremlin's kitchen and the personal chef of Brezhnev, then Gorbachev, Yeltsin and Putin for a couple of years. So he, he had been working for the Kremlin for over 30 years. And he told me a beautiful anecdote about Brezhnev. Russia or Soviet Union has always been a country which was uh, very good at the food diplomacy. So whenever you have to prove how rich you are, you just invite people for a party and they see how great food you serve. So they were serving all the most expensive food at the Kremlin. So they would serve the best caviar, and they would sell the Kamchatka crabs salad, which is extremely expensive. They would serve sturgeons, which is an extremely expensive and, and great fish. And they would make, they have a special Kremlin recipe. I have this recipe in the, the book, which will be published soon. So something extremely delicious. But Brezhnev, the head of that country, the, the head of the Soviet Union, he was a simple guy from a simple family with a very simple background. And he didn't like this kind of food. So whenever there was a party at the Kremlin, he was so pissed, you know, he was so angry because there was everything on these tables, but nothing he would like. So when there was a party, he was just bored and annoyed and he didn't like the food that was served. That was the golden cage I, I, I'm talking about. And the, when the party was over, he went to his private apartments and then he would call his private chef, Mr. Belive, that I mentioned, and he would ask him to fry some potatoes and serve it to him with sour cream because that was the food he loved. That was the food he grew up with. That's amazing. And it's interesting, one of the things that comes across in your book as well is that when these chefs survive from one regime to another, they have to adapt. Uh, so Idi Amin's chef survives, I think, a couple of regime changes, doesn't he? And, and presumably has to slightly adapt his, his style as well, just as the Russian chef did. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like Idi Amin's chef, Africa is in, in the process, in the middle of the process of decolonization. Mm. And actually, the reason why he was hired as a personal chef of the first president of independent Uganda was that he knew how to cook for white people. And then the first president of independent Uganda, Milton Obote, he wanted, you know, he wanted Uganda to be a free, independent African state. But at the same time, he loved European kitchen. And so that was the first reason. But then General Idi Amin made a coup d'etat. And 
he asked for the African food. And as exactly as you said, he had to switch and he had to learn a lot. They are all very smart. If they weren't smart, they wouldn't survive a week in a dictator's palace. They were all very smart. But I think this guy, Oton de Odera, he was one of the smartest. And I remember, I will never forget the story from the coup d'etat when he told me his strategy of survival. He knew that Idi Amin's people are killing the people of the president Milton Obote. And people in the palace, they were so afraid that they will be the next to be killed. But the chef, he told to everyone, guys, we have to work like it was a normal day. So all he did was he prepared the best dinner he could. And he served it with a silver spoons and silver forks that were left after the, the British. And when Idi Amin came to the palace, before he started thinking, shall I kill those people or, or shall I not? He was asked for the greatest dinner he could have imagined. And Oton de Odera, the chef, he told me, I knew he would be hungry. I knew making a revolution takes a lot of energy and he would be hungry. If there would be no food, he would definitely execute all of us. But there was food. The food was excellent. And for a moment, he felt that he won. He saw the silver spoons, silver forks, amazing food. And he knew he won. That was his moment of triumph. And they were all saved and they all kept working for the new president. So all the political transformations through the eyes of the chefs are, are simply amazing to, to listen and to read about. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. I'm historian Ruth Goodman, host of Noise's newest podcast, The Curious History of Your Home. I've spent my life investigating the hidden history of everyday objects, the vacuum cleaner in your cupboard, sleek and compact today. But when it was invented, it was literally powered by horses and took four to six people to operate. The minty fresh toothpaste by a sink. Well, if you lived in ancient Greece, you'd be washing your teeth with ground up bones and oyster shells. Double glazed windows? We owe those to a French king's odd fascination with oranges. The Curious History of Your Home explores the extraordinary in the ordinary. Listen to The Curious History of Your Home each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. From award-winning podcasters Noiser, The Curious History of Your Home.
And it's a very scary situation to be in and a weird kind of power to have that you're controlling what goes into these men's bodies in some ways. You know, it can affect their mood. It can affect their policies even to some extent. I mean, I guess these chefs were conscious that their lives in some cases and other people's lives were in their hands in terms of what they put on the dinner table. Absolutely. The extreme example of that would be the chef of Enver Hoxha. He's the late dictator of Albania. Hmm. And his chef told me openly that I probably saved thousands of lives because I could have read Hoja's moods. And when I saw, and he used the phrase, he's in the mood of killing, I would have served him really the best food I could. And I, I was able to, to make him feel well. To calm him? Exactly, yeah. to calm him down. Mm. And this chef, he's sure that Hoja had diabetes. So cooking for him was very tricky because he was, he was a gourmand. He knew what the good food means, but on the other hand, he couldn't really eat the good food because he had very strict limit of calories per day. And uh, it was extremely hard to cook for him. The chef, he had to deal with the doctors that twice a week he might give him something sweet. So whenever he saw that Hoja is angry, that was the day for the sweets. And he's absolutely sure that he saved many people because he knew when is the moment to, to serve some, some sweets to Hoja. But again, it's that kind of very delicate balancing act. It has to be sweet, but not dangerously like, sweet. The right? previous chef was executed. Because Hoja was in a bad mood and just out of the blue, he accused the chef of, of an attempt to poison him. And that guy was taken on the morning. He went to work and in the evening he wasn't back at his home because, you know, crazy dictator accused him that he's, he's, he was trying to kill him. And there's a lot of paranoia about poisoning, I guess. I mean, several of the chefs in your book end up accused of poisoning at one point. One of them has to take a child to the hospital to prove that they've got a case of gas and they haven't been poisoned. A couple of others lucky to escape yeah. with their lives, really. I mean, that must have been a, a constant terror. And you've got other chefs jostling for position. You've got other people informing on each other. You know, that whole kind of the danger of being in the inner circle of the dictator you're really not protected from it as the chef. If anything, you kind of automatically come under suspicion if anything happens. Yeah, it's working for a dictator is like, a, you know, walking on a minefield. You make mistake only once. And those chefs I had the chance to talk with, they were those who didn't make any mistakes. It's like cooking and playing chess at the same time, because there is so many intrigues and there's so many people who would like to have to be in your position. And usually you are much more than a chef. For example, Idi Amin's chef was the one who was bringing women for Idi Amin secretly be behind his wives wouldn't know about it. And other people working for the dictator, they were jealous because he was very close to the president. And of course, they would try to blackmail him. And actually, at the end, they, they succeeded with that. He was very close to death. He was almost executed. Actually, in the last minute, Idi Amin decided to save him, but he, he told him to leave the country. But generally, every day of your work for a dictator makes you very close to death. And each of those chefs, they were 
very close to death at least once. The extreme case was the chef of, of Pol Pot. She was 15 times she was accused of being Vietnamese spy, Chinese spy, American spy, Russian spy. And uh, 15 times she was close to death. Amazing. You mentioned this idea of them kind of playing chess with their lives as they're cooking. I was quite struck. Some of these chefs you actually cooked with, you know, they took you into the kitchen. With all of them, actually. With all of them, did you? Amazing. Yeah, that was the idea of the book. Some kind of unique culinary workshop with with them. (laughs) What kind of insight did you get seeing them cook? I mean, did they have very different styles? Were they quite methodical? Were they very careful? I mean, what? how did their cooking kind of express their their personality, I suppose, and what they would bring to that job. They're they're pretty damn dictators themselves, you know. <laughs> I, I, I have a theory that every chef might be dictator and probably maybe not every dictator might be a chef, but many of them could. In mm. the new book, I make an investigation about Vladimir Putin's grandfather, who was a chef, <laughs> who, who cooked for Stalin in a few occasions. Mm. But um, yeah, that was my biggest discovery that they, they are very, very bossy and you don't discuss with them. You, they are, they have these characters, but at the same time, they are charming personalities. And even when you cook with them, it's a great pleasure. They are this kind of people that you like spending time with because dictators, they are naturally good psychologists. And I think somehow they have this instinct that the person who cooks for you should be a person who spreads a good energy, should be a person who's in a good mood because you spread that energy to the food that that you prepare. And your personal chef shouldn't be a person who's mainly complaining and who's mainly in a bad mood. And the dictators, they had this instinct to hire people who mainly spread a good energy. How did these people come to work for these dictators? I mean, was it a job you applied for? Was there a test? Did they kind of just wander into it? How did they end up in this quite extraordinary situation? Mainly, there is two paths that that, that can get you to this position. First is that you're young, naive, not to say stupid, and and you join some sort of revolutionary movement and you're trusted. So at some point, they make you cook for for the leader. That's the case of Erasmo Hernandez, the, the man who cooked for Fidel Castro for many years. I met him in Havana. He began exactly this way. When he was 15, he joined the revolution. Firstly, he became the bodyguard of Che Guevara. And then Che gave him as a gift to Fidel because Fidel had to strengthen his his security. So that's that's path number one. You join the movement, they trust you, you start cooking. Path number two is a dictator has the power and as all dictators do, he started thinking, okay, how can I prove that I really have a lot of power? I want the best chef of my country to cook for me. So that's path number number two. You're the best chef or one of the best chefs in your country. And one day the security service comes to your door. They make knock, knock. 
and they give you an offer that you can't really refuse. So that's the story of Abu Ali, the chef of Saddam Hussein. He was just asked to cook for Hussein. And, and he told me about his first meeting with Saddam. Saddam asked him personally, Abu Ali, I heard you're such a great chef. Would you give me this honor and cook for me? And Abu Ali, actually, Abu Ali didn't want to do that. Like Abu Ali knew that it, it's going to be a horrible job. But he didn't know if, if, a, if this kind of offer from a president is an offer he could refuse. So just in case, he said yes. And you convey brilliantly that sense of the danger of working around these men. I mean, Saddam at one point wants to do some cooking himself, doesn't he? And he puts this extreme amount of Tabasco sauce in the food. And he's he's sort of almost kind of taunting both his guests and the chef by kind of using food to play these power games, I suppose. I mean, it, it's a really scary situation to be in and, and you have to be the one saying you know yes sir yes sir oh yes of course more salt less salt you, you, you know trying to meet their tastes but knowing that there's this terrible threat hanging over your head the whole time yeah but this is exactly as you said like that was the proof of his power that he mm. can ask you if he makes you a horrible meal which is very spicy, full of Tabasco, but, but Saddam made it. So you cannot even really complain about the taste of that food. And that was the same game that Stalin was playing with his uh, comrades, asking them to, to drink a lot, to eat a lot and to dance for him. So that's humiliating, but that's the way they prove their power. Tell me a bit about the relationship with the dictator's wives, because sometimes there's a bit of tension there that the wives feel they should be doing the cooking and there's a competitiveness. In other cases, the wives seem to become quite friendly and quite close with the chefs. But it feels like there's always a, a danger there of, you know, how do you react to this person who also has a lot of power, but at the same time, the dictator may have views on the relationship that you're having with them. Idi Amin's chef, Mr. Otondo Dera, he told me that Idi Amin had four wives, but he was a, a brutal, immoral personality. And it must have been very hard to be his wife. So sometimes they would go to a kitchen because I think in many places, kitchen is a natural place where you, where you go. It's like heart of every house, even the presidential palace of a dictator. So uh, Mr. Odera told me that those wives would come to the kitchen to ask for some extra food, but they were trying to confess or complain about their life. But he said that that was a trap. Like he knew that becoming close with Idi Amin's wife wasn't a good idea for him. That the guy he had to be close with was Idi Amin, not his wives. Probably if the chef was too close with them, he might easily have been accused of some sort of, you know, conspiracy relations with them or whatever. And I was quite struck Pol Pot's chef ends up becoming quite close to his wife. I mean, there, there's an interesting dynamic there. First of all, she seems, she seems to sort of imply to you that she and Pol Pot had a kind of what a flirtation or a <laughs> some, some there was something between them. But then the wife had these quite severe mental health problems and the chef ended up being the one who was kind of responsible. That's yeah. fascinating story. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, one of the hardest questions I had to ask someone when working on that book 
was when I had to ask the chef of uh, Pol Pot if there was something between her and Pol Pot because mm. her attention to Pol Pot and her approach to him was uh, was very unprofessional i would say it was very romantic like she was she was talking about him not like an employee talks about the employer but she was talking about how handsome he was how charming smile he had and you know i kept that question for my last day so i knew i had my mat- my material is collected and even if, if she kicks me out because that's something very inappropriate to ask an elderly lady in Cambodia if there was something between her and Pol Pot. But I had to ask because it's sort of Adolf Hitler, Eva Brown story that I had the chance to talk personally to, to a person that was so close on a romantic level with one of the most horrible mass murders in the history. So I kept that question for the last day and I was smart enough to ask my fixer and translator to tell her, guys, tell her that I'm a stupid European, that in Europe it's something normal, that we ask this kind of question. Just you know, make, make a good intro mm-hmm. to my question. And I asked that question if there was something you know, romantic or not, not even romantic between her and Pol Pot. And she answered, but the answer is in the book. <laughs> Very good. And it, it's interesting when you were talking about these relationships, though, she's the one who, even after he dies, cooks a meal for him, doesn't she? She cooks a sort of memorial meal. I mean, these relationships endured. And, and with some of the other chefs, are long after they have left the service of the dictator, you know, actually, they go back and cook for them now and then. I asked her, we went together to the place where Pol Pot is buried mm. and uh, she cooked his favorite soup. Like she didn't, she didn't really want to cook for that day. Mm. And we wanted to make a documentary with her. And I saw this as a last scene that she's cooking his favorite soup. That was uh, the chicken soup. Mm. And uh, and and that she goes with the pot and she's sort of giving the soup to, to his ghost. But when I was trying to make, like we went to the, to the grave together, but she didn't want to cook. She, she told me, brother, it doesn't make sense. His spirit is not here anymore. He reincarnated and he's living somewhere, but he's not here anymore. Mm-hmm. So he's among us. He's living. Maybe he's in Brazil. Maybe he's in England. Maybe he's in the United States. Maybe he's in Poland. But for sure, Pol Pot and his spirit, he's among us. And when I heard that sentence that, you know, that new Pol Pot reincarnated, he's among us. I was like, oh, my God, it's so scary. This is a book about the mechanisms. How to feed a dictator means literally what to cook for them. But the second meaning is we prepare the soil for them. We, pre- we, we feed them with our fears, with our frustrations, with our complaints. And we prepare, we, we make them grow, we make them strong. And if the chef of Pol Pot was right that he's among us, ah, that's scary. And I'm afraid she might be right. I was interested that you 
include the kind of testimonies and the stories of other people as well in the book, uh, which I think sort of balances that sense that the, the chefs are often real loyalists, but then you have other people who carry that kind of legacy of the trauma of dictatorship. I needed someone because when I have Paul Pot's chef telling me how great person he was, mm. even if I try to confront her with facts, it doesn't work. Whenever I was trying to confront her, she was telling me, brother, I spent 25 years of my life with Pol Pot. Who knows better? Was he a bad person or a good person? You or me? No discussion. So I needed, very, very quickly, I realized that for each story, I need a person who would say what the people who were living under the dictatorships, what did they eat? and how we they struggle to live in those countries. Because in many cases, they were starving, you know, as the chef is creating, there was one guy had this signature dish that was a, a whole goat, right? You know, creating these sometimes quite marvelous feasts. There are people who, you know, are struggling for anything to eat, right? Yeah, yeah. And um, in, the, in the book about Russia and USSR, I show how USSR took and uh, and used hunger as a weapon. So we talked quite a lot about how speaking to these chefs gave you insights into the dictators. I'm kind of curious, did it also change your view of cooking? I mean, did it inspire you to try new recipes yourself? Did you learn anything from cooking with these chefs that you could kind of take home with you? Oh, my one of my favorite soups now is the soup of Tikrit, which used to be the favorite soup of Saddam Hussein. And that was a home recipe. It's not a traditional Iraqi dish, nothing like that. That was a dish that Hussein's family used to cook at home. And it's it's such an amazing recipe because you make it, you make the soup, but you make it a little bit like a cake because you make levels. Mm. You so you have apricot. You have tomato, you have fish, then you, you, you have onion, almonds. It's very Middle Eastern soup, but it's amazing. Like the, the whole recipe is in the book, but it's so tasty. And for a moment, when I was about to prepare it for the first time at home, I was like, oh my God, but this is Saddam Hussein's soup. How can I cook it? How can I eat it? But then I was like, ah, come on, it's just a soup. It wasn't the soup that was killing people. It wasn't a soup that was causing wars. It's it's just a soup. You can eat it. And I simply love it. It's, it's really one of the best soups that I can cook. Amazing. Thank you, Vitold. I think that's a lovely point to end on. It's been really fascinating. And as I say, I loved reading your book and I can't wait to read the next one. That sounds fascinating as well. Thank you so much. It was a great pleasure. And thanks to you for listening to this bonus episode. Real Dictators will return in the coming weeks with further stories of tyrants the world over. Stay tuned.